This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Uh, This for the next hour is a broadcast where if you are listening somewhere, you have a question as you've been studying God's word or an issue you've been facing in your personal life or ministry or church, and you'd like biblical direction, that's why we're here. And all you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843-525-1859. Uh, Toll-free, the 877 number is the call letters, W-A-G-P. And we do broadcast. Some of you don't know it, but we broadcast through the Worldwide Net. And so we have people who move from here, and they look for a good Christian radio station. And unfortunately, the majority now have music formats only. And so they discover they can listen in their home at WAGP.net. And so the toll-free number is 877, the call letters, W-A-G-P-980. When you call, you can... uh, Go on the air live, and we do give preference to live callers, or you can simply dictate your question to Deb, and she'll be happy to receive it, and she'll shoot that to us here in our broadcast studio. A lot of people go online, and they email us at TBL, that's for the Bible line, TBL at net, and we get up tons of questions that way every week, more than we can answer. But we will do our best, by God's grace, to respond to your questions. And so let's jump in with both feet, and we'll get started here, Rick. Well, Pastor, last week we asked a question but didn't really have enough time to fully go into it. So we're going to lead off with that question again. Lisa would like to know, what does the Bible teach us regarding generational curses? How do generational curses affect Christians today? And how can we be delivered from these curses? Well, uh, it's a great question, Lisa, and unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, false teaching and uh, superstition almost that's um, built up around the whole subject of generational curses, and there's even uh, thoughts where, look, it's not my fault, I'm just a, a victim of my father's or grandfather's sin. So when you think of generational curses, there's three principal passages that deal with this particular subject. Two are easy to remember because they're found in the Decalogue. And, of course, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, is recorded in two places, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5. So I've turned to Exodus chapter 20, and there we read, God said, You shall not worship them, false gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." In the parallel passage here in the book of Deuteronomy, very similar. Let me go ahead and read it. Deuteronomy 5, uh, here in verses 9 and 10. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the third and fourth generation, again underscoring your mind, of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." 
The other time a very similar statement is made is found here in the book of Numbers. If you remember, there was a time when God had promised the land uh, to Israel. It was theirs to go in and receive. It was not if they were going to conquer the land. The only question Moses sending in 12 spies was to see how they were going to conquer the land. And of course, um, in the whole process, as you read in the book of, of Numbers, uh, you, you discover, of course, 10 spies who come back with a negative report, and just two, Joshua and Caleb, who really believe God, great men of faith. And of course, those men and all those who were uh, of a lower age, those 20 and up, all perished in the wilderness. Uh, those uh, under that age went in with Joshua and Caleb. But here in Numbers 14, uh, Moses is pleading with God uh, because, if you remember, after the spies came back with a negative report, they want a new leader. They want to dump Moses, and they want to go back to Egypt. Sounds like a lot of people dealing with their pastors today. Uh, but let's first stone Moses and Aaron. And so here's Moses. He's such a great guy. I love this man. You know, he doesn't say, well, Lord, go ahead, you know, let them all fall alive into Hades. He, he says, he pleads with them. And, and so he quotes God's own word back to him. He says, the Lord, he's speaking to God, Yahweh, it's all caps, capital L-O-R-D, which tells you this is the sacred covenant name that God made with Israel. Uh, Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. So those are the three principal passages that deal with these so-called generational curses, as Lisa has described them. And by the way, it may sound kind of unfair for God to punish children for the sins of their fathers. But understand, there's more to it than that. The effects of the sin is what is naturally passed down from generation to generation. I mean, think your way through this. If a father leads a sinful lifestyle, it's very possible that his children will follow that lifestyle. Very often, as the father goes, especially as the head of the home, so go the children. The opposite is true. If uh, the father leads a godly lifestyle, so the children go. And by the way, this is uh, refracted in not just a lifestyle, but sometimes in an area of life. If you remember, Abraham lied, and it's not by accident that his son lied, and his son lied. Uh, there was a generational pattern. Today, um, a man is uh, loose in his viewing habits. He is open to watching programming that he shouldn't watch. And uh, his sons, his daughters, end up doing the same thing. Ungodly fathers tend to produce ungodly children. And this is where the role of the father is critical in the family. Let me read, though, a passage that puts this into perspective, two passages, so that no one can come to the conclusion, well, you know, because my dad was ungodly, that automatically makes me ungodly. No, it does not. Paul reminds us in Romans that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But if you train up a child not in righteousness in the way he should go, if you do not bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, someone else may captivate their heart. And so here in the prophet Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, he says, the soul or the person who sins will die. We read very similar statements, do we not, in the New Testament, for the wages of sin is death. But then he goes on to say, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. 
nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Now, again, you know, you can lead by pattern. If a man robs a bank and the government is going to punish the man who robs it, it doesn't automatically mean that the son who had nothing to do with the bank robbery is going to be punished. However, if that dad is training his son to steal and they're both involved in the caper, then they both may well indeed be, um, you know, punished. But what's happening today, and it's um, it used to be somewhat limited to the Pentecostal uh, brethren in the country, uh, but today it's kind of walked into uh, evangelical circles because more and more there there used to be, by the way, a distinction between evangelicals and Pentecostals, and so those were two distinct terms. Now, when the media uses them, evangelical these you know Bible believing uh, thumpers, so to speak, you know we're all grouped together. And sometimes we're grouped together with unbelievers as well because the unbelieving world can't distinguish us apart. But now in traditional evangelicalism, a lot of emotionalism and uh, non-biblical practices uh, led sometimes through men, sometimes through popular teachers like Beth Moore, where emotionalism uh, supersedes Scripture. Now, they would not say that, but if you do a careful analysis of their theology, you discover that's exactly what they're teaching. So there is a, a trend in the church today to say that we have to break these generational curses or that we're our victims of our father's sin. But again, God is very, very clear that you are not indeed uh, a product of your father's sin. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Add to that, not only does Ezekiel 18, which we quoted, tell us that each one is responsible for his own sin. The Father can't, you know, automatically uh, translate what he has done to his son and to his son's son. No, each carries his own responsibility. Likewise, Moses said the same thing in Deuteronomy 24. Let me read that. Deuteronomy 24 in verse 16. There Moses wrote, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. In other words, we can't share our guilt with another, and nor can we be held responsible for, um, you know, another person's transgressions. We each stand on ourselves. You know, there's a big movement today that is saying, you know, we need to ask for forgiveness for our generational predecessors for sins that they've committed. Well, look, uh, I, I think there are denominations and groups that need to not hide and whitewash what some of their predecessors did. Uh, For instance, Southern Baptists, they were formed over the issue of slavery. There was a young man in Alabama who wanted to become a foreign missionary, and back in those years, the Foreign Mission Board was located in New York City. He went there. They discovered that his family owned slaves, and so they rejected him as a candidate. And so that became the genesis for the Southern Baptist Convention. Were they wrong? Southern Baptists dead wrong. Absolutely wrong. It was a wicked evil that they were propagating. And so they basically said, well, you'll take our money for missions, but you won't take our sons, so we won't take you. And they formed the Southern Baptist Convention. Was it wrong for Al Mohler to come out and say, hey, you know, 
um, what our forefathers did was wrong. No, that was a good thing to do. He took responsibility for it. But can I be blamed for the sins of my forefathers? And should reparations be made, you know, for people who are descended from them? Of course not. Each generation, that'd be like me saying, look, my grandfather came from Ireland and he came in the 1920s. And for the most part, all the Irish people who came across the waters in that day were Catholics. There were a few Protestants, but if you're Irish, and especially Irish Catholic, uh, with African Americans, you were treated as scum. Uh, He couldn't get a job except the most menial jobs in the 1920s that were offered to him. And so for a while he ran an elevator and he did his best with it. Uh, Later he drove a truck for a Boston company called Jordan Marsh, but he was treated like scum. Uh, Does that mean that, you know, I should get reparations? (laughs) If so, how much? You know, do I get a dollar? Do I get a thousand dollars? Ten thousand dollars? A hundred thousand? Who's going to pay for all this? Look, it doesn't work that way biblically. Each generation, each individual takes responsibility for their own sin. And there's no generational curse that is passed on. So there's no generational curse that needs to be broken except our own disobedience. And if you pass on sin to your generation and your children's children, it's because you've trained them up in wickedness. And they, in turn, did not respond to the grace that superseded the terrible environment that they were raised in. Because, again, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But when someone comes to faith in Christ, there is no, absolutely zero, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That's a great question, Lisa. It comes up every once in a while, but I'm glad you asked it. You know, I noticed we've got some resources that might be of help uh, as far as how to parent. We've got the Biblical Parenting Series that you did a few years back, and it's available at searchthescriptures.org, our website there, also on the Search the Scriptures app for tablets and smartphones. Um, also, I think uh, you may have addressed some of this question in a message you entitled A Compromise Dad when you were looking at Genesis 38. So yes. that might also that be That would be a, a great one. resource. Yeah, thank you, Rick. A year ago we did, right after Easter, the Wednesday after Easter, we're doing a new series this year on really handling your finances God's way. So that begins Wednesday night. And, and it's done with a little different twist because I think we are in a unique time in American history in light of debt, not just national but personal and we are headed for a major crash. It's possible it can be averted, but based on the current trajectory and decisions the government and individuals are making, it, I don't think it's going to be. Uh, so this year we're going to talk about, well, how do I prepare myself as a Christian? What does God say about my money? And, and how do I prepare if indeed this crash comes? But last year at this time, we did Parenting 101. In the fall of this year, we will do Parenting 102. But Parenting 101 would be a huge help and this message that Rick mentions from Genesis. So how would they find that? A lot of people don't know that we even have a phone app. So if you use an iPhone, you can just go to the App Store, and if you are an Android user, then you go to the Google Play Store, download the Search the Scriptures, uh, and also add Brogy, because a couple of different apps have searched the Scriptures. There's some derivative in there, but if you add the word Brogy, B-R-O-G-G-I, you will definitely get the right app. That's easy for your smartphone and tablet. And then if you don't have one of those, you can go to our website, searchthescriptures.org, and all the resources are available there. There's also a search bar in the upper right-hand corner that allows you to enter a topic, and you'll have uh, a lot of uh, product that comes out from that. 
Well, our first caller says they noticed that her church had a lot more people attend the service this past Easter Sunday, and she'd like to know if most of these people call themselves Christians, how do they reconcile not going to church every week? Well, it's it's a fantastic question, and uh, I actually addressed it in the final uh, words I said before I left the auditorium. Um, what I basically said is, look, I'm so glad for people who come, you know, once or twice a year, you know, there's the poinsettia and Easter, you know, Easter Lily, Lily the P&L yeah, crowd, the P&L crowd. Yeah. Poinsettia and Easter Lily crowd. And, uh, unfortunately, um, that's when some Americans go to church twice a year and they feel like they've met their obligation. And, and it means one of two things. And some lady left some ranting message on, you know, the phone and I get messages all the time. And Claudia says, you want to hear this one? I said, is it for me or against me? She said, it's, it's a rant. I said, okay, I'll listen to it. And, you know, she accused me of saying that unless someone came to Community Bible Church that, you know, all other churches were bad. And she went on with this rant about nothing I ever said, you know, but people do that. And then she'll probably run around the community and say the same thing. And um, But what I did say, and look, I'm going to speak the truth to people. Uh, I'm so glad that people do come. And we especially, at least our church and many churches that are represented here in our listening audience, most of us make a certain, you know, pointed effort to invite people to Easter services. Why? Because Easter, even over Christmas, is the single best Sunday of the year to invite someone who's unchurched or someone who claims to be a Christian. But what I said at the end of the service, I'll say, you know, if you come just once or twice a year, just a couple of things. Number one, John says in his first epistle, where John writes certain things to show that a person is saved. And so when he comes to the end of the letter, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. And some people have used that verse to say, well, a person could be saved and and lack assurance. And so he's writing so that they can know. No, what he's actually doing in that epistle is he's countering some pre-Gnostic teaching where certain people who called themselves Christians embraced a certain way of life and doctrinal position that was really contrary to what God had already revealed in his word. And so what John does is he steps through and he says, look, if this is true of you, you have the mark of a Christian. Then he uh, finishes it by saying, these things I've written to you who believe, who are truly saved in the Son of God, so you can know that you have eternal life. If these things are true of you, then you show the marks of genuine conversion. And so one of the marks that he gives, by this we know that we've passed out of death into life, that we love the brethren. Now listen to that. Here's one of the ways you can know that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son that you've been transferred out of death because we have death written across our spiritual DNA before we are born again. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Here's how we can know that we've passed out of death into life. We love the brethren. Who are the brethren? He speaks of them several times in this short little letter in First John, the little ones, the born ones those who've been born from above, those who have fellowship with the Father. So one of the marks of conversion is that you have an affinity and a love for the people of God. And I don't think someone who attends church once a year really demonstrates that affinity. And so all I said briefly, I said at the end of the service, look, if you just come once or twice a year, I'd love for you to come back. 
But it's important for you to ask your question, you know, yourself the question, why do I come once or twice a year? John would say it either A, is proof that you've never been delivered from death into a second birth, or B, you're out of fellowship with God. And so even in the first chapter, he says, these things I'm writing to you that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And and there are certain marks of someone who's walking with the Lord. And so if someone comes just once or twice a year, what does it say among other things? They're disobedient Christians, if they are Christians. And so God tells us to test ourselves to see if we be of the faith. You know, and so someone who doesn't honor the Lord's day is doing one thing. He is living in disobedience. That's what God says. We're to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. I'm reading from Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stimulate one another. Who's the one another? Believers in the context to love and good deeds. How can you do that if you don't assemble with them? And so then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together as has become the habit of some of those that he's writing. Now, why were some of the Hebrew Christians forsaking their assembling together with other born-again Jewish believers? Because to associate with other Jewish people who said Jesus is the Messiah meant persecution, it meant your, your businesses were ostracized, and so on and so forth. It just meant suffering. And so he says, we're not to forsake our own assembling together. So these are not the excuses that Christians typically use today for not going to church. Oh, you know, it's my only day off, Sunday, so that's why I don't go to church. It's my one day to rest. Well, God says you're supposed to work in six days. He doesn't say a five-day work week. You work six days, and on the seventh, you rest. So God presupposes that you work six days. Now, maybe you're with a secular employment five days a week and day six, you know, you're doing other things, you know, cutting your grass or whatever. But he assumes still on the first day of the week, which was the day God dictated for the people of God to gather, that we would get together. We're not to forsake our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but we are to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? the day of the Lord. Why does he exhort us all the more as you see the day drawing near? Because as we approach the end of time, most people's love will grow cold. And one of the reasons that evil will have such freedom is because Christians will have a cold love towards the Lord. And when people are not really salt and light, Jesus said they become useless. They're like, you know, a salt block just used to fill in a pothole on the street but they don't have any effect in terms of dispelling darkness and preserving righteousness. And as we move to the end of the age, evil is going to grow. And so all the more do we need one another and that mutual encouragement that comes. So if someone comes just once a year, you know, we, and again, I'm, I'm glad we do special outreaches around Easter and we had several hundred more for Easter than we might have on a typical Sunday. And I hope in the weeks to come, maybe God will give me the opportunity and privilege to, to lead some of them to Christ, or if they know the Lord, to encourage them to be a part of a local Bible-believing church. And I will often say, if not our church, then find another Bible-believing church. But you can't float. God doesn't want you to be a floater. He wants you to commit yourself to a local assembly. You say, well, my church is weak. Well, find the best one you can get in and serve. Pray for the pastor, and you be a light. You be a servant. Someday you'll give an account as a Christian in heaven 
as to how you use your gifts in the local church in the body of Christ. So I really appreciate that question. Thanks for asking. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Glenn from Bluffton writes, I grew up in a Pentecostal church as a young child that believed in order to go to heaven, you had to receive the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that was speaking in tongues. After a couple of years, I started hearing saved by grace through faith. I wanted to know if you can direct me to scriptures that clarify my confusion about entering heaven. Thank you for teaching the word of God with such passion. I am a millennial and I listen to search the scriptures almost every day. <laughs> he says he's a millennial. I made a few side comments just about the track record of millennials. And it's kind of scary. It's really, it's sad in terms of the millennial generation. Uh, but I'm glad as a millennial, he, he's taking the things of God serious, and we need to reach millennials. But what you stated there was a half-truth. They said in order to go to heaven, you must receive the Holy Spirit. That is true. If you're going to go to heaven, you must receive the Holy Spirit. The false second half of the statement is you have to speak in tongues. Now, Jesus said a man must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. If you are going to go to heaven, you must be born again. When is someone born again? The moment they believe the gospel. Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, in him, he's speaking of Christ, in Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth. And by the way, that is a critical event. People have to hear, listen to the message of truth. It's not your testimony It is not your lifestyle that's going to bring people into the kingdom of God. Now, your testimony and lifestyle may give a platform for you to share the message of truth, but people have to hear the message of truth. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. After listening to the message of truth, by the way, what is the message of truth? I don't have to wonder. The gospel of our salvation. The message of truth is the gospel of our salvation, and it's articular. The word gospel is somewhat of a religious word in our day, but it just in the first century meant good news, and it could be used in many secular contexts. If I were a soldier, my gospel might be the war is over. If I were married, my gospel might be we're going to have a baby. But the gospel refers to a specific good news, and it's important because Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So I better know what the gospel is if that's how God saved me. I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and raised on the third day. So the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. And that's the message that people have to hear preached. So after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge and as an earnest, as a down payment, depending on your English text, of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So he's saying, listen, when you're born again, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. He's not in you. Now, he may work on you. In fact, he has to work on you in this age before you can come to faith. Um, Christ promised that he would send the Spirit who would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So apart from his ministry, men are blind to the truth of the gospel. They need to hear the message of truth, but they need to hear it with power and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In a parallel account in 2 Corinthians 1, it says that the Spirit sealed us and, um, excuse me, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, 
who has sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So the fact that you are born again and the Spirit lives in you, and by the way, he will never leave you. You cannot be unborn again. In a traditional Pentecostal um, doctrine, they say you can lose salvation. No, he has given his pledge. He seals you. How long does he seal me? I didn't read it from Ephesians 4, but you're sealed for the day of redemption. So he is God's earnest, God's guarantee, God's mark, God's seal, that what he began, he will indeed complete. So that happened. So what they said is true. To go to heaven, you must receive the Spirit. How do you receive the Spirit? By hearing the gospel. But it's not enough to hear. You have to receive it. You have to believe in your heart um, the gospel message that you're bankrupt and only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can save you and deliver you from sin. Will that be accompanied by speaking in tongues? Not necessarily. See, what we do sometimes is we take some of the historical passages, say in the book of Acts, and we make those nominal for all Christians. Listen, the book of Acts is a transitional time, and it's not that you cannot get and obtain doctrine from the book of Acts. You can, but it's still a transitional book, and there are some things that are unique to the book of Acts. And so it is true in the day of Pentecost. By the way, what if those 120 in the upper room, say half a dozen, it got too hot and they had a heart attack? (laughs) Would they have gone to hell because they had not received the Spirit? No, they would have went to heaven as new covenant believers. But once Pentecost comes, the pattern is, is the moment you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. There's an exception to that rule in Acts 8, and God gives a reason for it. You can listen to my series on Acts. That might be helpful. Um, But the moment you believe, you receive the Spirit. And there In the record in Acts 2, they spoke in tongues, and not the kind of gibberish you hear today, real languages, and not just languages, but dialects within a language, dialectos in in languages. So uh, God speaks of of both there in Acts 1. Um, But does that mean today that when a person receives Jesus, they should speak in tongues? Clearly not. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 speaks to the fact that God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But there are memory members in one body. Why, why is he speaking to this? Because there are some gifts, sign gifts especially, that the Corinthians gravitated to because they saw them as so like, wow, gifts, that they emphasize those sometimes to the exclusion of the other. And Paul says, listen, every gift, just like every member of your physical body, is critical. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it seems true that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are more necessary and so forth. And so so that there might be no division in the body, the members are to share the same care and expression. They're all important. Then he concludes that. And he says, now you are Christ's body, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues, etc. All are not apostles, are they? It's a rhetorical question. In Greek, there's only one answer, no. And it's clear in the English text. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All do not speak in tongues, do they? No. No, no. So to say that tongues, especially the kind of ridiculous tongues that people are speaking in today, 
that mimic more of the kinds of tongues that two and three hundred years before Christ that the cultic groups in Greece spoke in that have nothing to do with anything. Um, to say that speaking in tongues is a sign of conversion and that the Holy Spirit is coming to live in you, and that is a sign and critical for you to be saved. It's just bad, rotten, lousy doctrine. And I must say, parenthetically here, in fairness to Pentecostals, that when the Pentecostal movement really originated in the early part of the um, 20th century, uh, that was typical, though many Pentecostals today no longer teach that, that speaking in tongues is a sign of conversion. So I say that in fairness to them. Many still do. Many do not. And so um, what they do today, many Pentecostals, is they say, well, this is a sign that you really have a super dose of the Holy Ghost, that this is a, um, you know, the baptism of the Spirit that happens after salvation, evidenced by speaking in tongues. Hey, if you want to really study this, you might want to listen to my course on spiritual gifts. It's available at searchthescriptures.org. Download the app. Um, you know, depending on the phone you have, uh, click in spiritual gifts. There's a bunch of messages. If you want to just listen to section six, it's called the sign gifts in the New Testament. I work through all the ins and outs. I did my doctoral dissertation on it, so it's pretty important to me. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. I think right. we have a live caller. Huh? We do indeed. We've got a live caller who has a question about the SBC. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Uh, good, good afternoon, gentlemen. Actually, it's not quite afternoon. Um, it's not quite a question, but a few additional points about uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, the Southern Baptists were, in fact, uh, founded uh, in slavery. And while that is true, uh, in the late 90s, early to late 90s, or mid to late 90s, I'm sorry, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention issued a public apology uh, for their... Uh, uh, foundation in slavery. Yes, they did, um, and I and I mentioned and, the most recent one, of course, done by Al Mohler, the president of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he just came out again in the last year with a public statement. And so, yes, that was a great thing they did. But go ahead. Um, I also wanted to point out that um, amongst uh, actual uh, denominations, uh, the Southern Baptists are amongst if not the fastest-growing denomination amongst African Americans. Um, In fact, uh, the uh, Savannah River Baptist Association uh, that my church is a part of also hosts uh, several uh, predominantly uh, black Southern Baptist churches. So I just wanted to uh, point that out. No, I think that's a fair thing. So one, I, I did state, in fairness to Southern Baptists, that they did make a formal... Apology, But the context of my comments is that, of course, what's happening now is there's a number of Southern Baptists, African-American Southern Baptists, who are arguing that reparations should be made to um, black American Christians for the sins of their fathers. And by the way, they're not alone in that. The whole social justice movement that has walked in the front door of evangelicalism is now promoting that among a whole number of other issues. And these are critical theological issues that have to be addressed. And my point, of course, in reference, I think it was Lisa who had called, dealt with generational sin, that we are not responsible 
for the sins of our forefathers. We are responsible for our own. And God makes that crystal clear in his word. That's not to say that Southern Baptists did not do a good thing in coming out to say that what they did was evil. And of course, through the 60s and 70s, and even into the early 80s, for the most part, African Americans were excluded from the five Southern Baptist theological seminaries. It's not until the mid-80s that that begins to change. And so if you're an African American and you want to be received into a conservative Bible-believing seminary, you were excluded from the Southern Baptist schools for some reason— you know, they were just not received. And so what did the average African-American born-again Christian who was serious about the Lord and wanted to get more of a formal education, where was he left? He was left to go to the liberal apostate seminaries like Duke Divinity School and, and um, you know, a host of others that I could name. That, by God's grace, because of the movement that really was spearheaded under Dr. Charles Stanley and Adrian Rogers and Judge Pressler and a number of other men, um, they changed the course of the Southern Baptist Convention. They were getting ready to lose it. And so like Al Mohler went into Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, over half the faculty had to quit. When Paige Patterson went into Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, two-thirds of the student body left, and half the faculty quit. Why? Because they could not sign a biblical inerrancy statement. And so, yeah, these social justice people, they were racists. And so, thank God for the conservative Bible-believing Christians who got back in power who were able to save nearly a billion dollars in assets. Look, I did a doctorate at a Southern, one of the five Southern Baptist seminaries. I'm not against them. My ordination is with Southern Baptists. But Southern Baptists right now are in a precarious position in terms of some doctrinal things that are coming down the pike, things with Beth Moore, gender issues, on and on. You know, we don't want to say anything negative about Beth Moore because she's a cash cow, you know, and she makes millions of dollars for the SBC. And so we don't want to say anything negative about her in spite of the fact that, you know, some really bad things are happening in the SBC. And if we lose the SBC, man, we've lost like the single most powerful evangelical denomination in the United States. So I'm not critical of them, but I'm neither am I blind to what is going on. Appreciate that caller's question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Adam uh, has a lengthy question. He says, I've been listening to your messages on the radio about deacons. And I was asked several years ago about being a deacon in my church. So I prayed and researched it and felt that I was not qualified because I had been previously married. And I explained to the deacon board my concerns. A few years later, they came to me again and said that was that because I was married and divorced before I was saved, that I would be qualified and I couldn't pick and choose what sin Jesus' blood would or would not cover. So I told them that I would make sure my friends and family would not be at church the day they voted. And if God wanted me to become a deacon, it's in his hands. The church voted unanimously, uh, unanimously for me to be a deacon. I told my wife and that what we prayed hard about, and I reckon I'm going to be a deacon. It's been seven years, and after hearing your studies, I'm having doubts that I made the right decision. And even letting it go to the church vote, I have been looking at your website for some other sermons, but not having much luck. Can you suggest any information that I can study to help me with this? Because 
The last thing I ever want to do is be out of God's will. Thank you for your time, and may God continue to bless your ministry. Well, let me say, Adam, first of all, I really appreciate your heart. And just because a group of people in a local fellowship, you know, unanimously and voted you in didn't make it right. There's a lot of stupid, boneheaded, unanimous decisions that are made in churches all across America every single week. But you see, here's the problem in our day is that people no longer know the scriptures and they no longer know what God's word teaches. And so why is it for almost 1950 years, the local church excluded people who are married a second time from serving as either deacons or elders? And by the way, it's based on a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He gives the qualifications first for an elder. And uh, he, he tells us that, among other things, that um, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. The Greek text says a one-woman man. And then when you come down to verse 8, deacons likewise, and he begins to unfold the qualifications for a deacon. And so he says deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children in their own households. Now, um, I have messages on this. You could go to my website, download the app, uh, the App Store. The Go- What's the Google thing called? It's the Google Play Store. Google Play Store. I have, a, you know, the iPhone, so I'm not as familiar, but the Google Play Store. and Get the app for Search the Scriptures. If you go to the Apple Store, I think just one comes up at the top, and that's mine. But if you add Brogy, like Rick says, you get the right app. Um, it's searchthescripture.org, and so we have an app. But you could listen to these messages. So, like, in the messages on elders and deacons, I go through the various historical positions in the church as to how people understood uh, the husband of one wife, or at least especially since 1950. Um, because what's happened since 1950 is the divorce rate has just skyrocketed. When I was a child in grammar school in the 1960s, I remember in my sixth grade class with Miss Courtney, there was 36 of us in the class, and there was just one little girl whose parents had divorced, and people would occasionally whisper, her parents are divorced. You know, and it was just the, the, the view of things was, was very, very different. But now it has skyrocketed. And it's very similar to what it was in the first century when Jesus walked on the earth. And it's not by accident because the Bible teaches there's a parallel between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. Both will be darkness when Jesus came the first time and when he comes back the second time. Darkness there, of course, being analogous with sin and evil. So the husband of one wife or a one-woman man, some more recent years said, well, that's a prohibition against polygamy. You know, one wife at a time. Listen. If a man was a polygamist today, if he had three, four, look, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, had 44 wives. Um, He would be considered an unbeliever. We're under the new covenant. And so while David could have a number of wives and still be, quote, unquote, a man after God's own heart, not under the new covenant, such a person would not even be considered a believer. They wouldn't be a member of the church if they had four or five wives. Now, we live in cultures where polygamy is still practiced. A few years ago, I got a question from an African who listens to search the scriptures, and he wanted to know, he said, I have five wives. What do I do? I've become to faith in Christ. What do I do? And which one do I live with? 
I said, well, you live with the first one. She's the wife of your covenant. But now that you have four other wives and a bunch of children through them, you still have a responsibility to care and take care of those children. But you have one wife, and that's how God sees it. So this is not a prohibition against a polygamist. Some would say, well, the husband of one wife, the Roman Catholics, obviously they practice celibacy in their leadership, whether it's a priest or a bishop or a cardinal or the pope. And so they say uh, this text is uh, a spiritual message behind it, that the priest, so to speak, the cardinal, the bishop, is totally dedicated to the church, that his wife is the church. And then the children that are mentioned who must be under control and so forth, those are the members of his congregation. Look, you can't spiritualize the text. You make the Bible mean anything you want it to mean when you uh, interpret it that way. Um, A third position is that this is a prohibition against a man being married, that he has to be married in order to serve as an elder in the church. Not true. It can't mean that. Now, it is true, and so you would expect, since God calls, you know, 99% of people in this life to get married, you would expect that he would address the qualifications for an elder on that level. And that's what he does. He assumes not only do you get married, that potentially you have children. Some people get married, can't have children. Some people never get married. Why? Not because they're weird. Um, Some Christians are trying to marry off people that God's called to be single. Paul speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 7, that God has gifted some people in this life to be single their whole life, that they might have a pure, undistracted devotion to the work of the Lord. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And some pastors, like John R. W. Stott, one of the great British pastors. He was single his whole life. That's why he was able to crank out 35 books, uh, because um, he, he had a lot of time on his hand. He gave undistracted devotion, not to mention Paul was single. Um, Paul was an elder. You say he was an apostle. Yes, he was an apostle, but he was also an elder. Now, not all elders are apostles, because to be an apostle, you had to have been hand-selected by Christ. You had to have seen him in his resurrection body. And if those two things were true, you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles, Second Corinthians twelve twelve, that only an apostle could do. But all apostles are elders. And so Peter in 1 Peter 5 describes himself as a fellow elder. By the way, if Peter was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it. He describes himself as a fellow elder. Now, Peter was married, Paul was single, but Paul was an elder. So to say that married single men are excluded, now they're not typical, but to say they are excluded from the office is not wrong, not to mention the chief elder is Jesus, and he was single his whole life. Add to that, um, some would say, well, this is a prohibition against a man who has lost his wife from a remarried widower. So your wife dies and you marry again. And therefore, you can't fully display the husband of one wife. I don't think so, because the opposite phrase, here's the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. A one-man woman is used of widows in the church where younger are encouraged to remarry. And I don't think Paul would encourage them to do that, for them to be excluded from the list that he commends um, uh, women to be on. Um, So I don't think that's in view. I think what has been typically held through all the church fathers in the early centuries, through the reformers, uh, is that this is a prohibition against a divorced man. Now, what you say that your members say is, well, this happened before I was a Christian. Look, there's a lot of things that happened before we're Christians that have nothing to do 
with A, forgiveness, or B, whether or not we can serve in an office. When I was in a church in um, Dallas, Texas, there was a man who became a member of our church who years before raped a young 14-year-old girl, uh, went to prison for it. I think he spent eight years there, came out, got converted, became a member of our church. Could he be a member... um, in good standing, yes. Could he be a deacon? Probably not. Why? Because he wouldn't meet the qualification that you have a good reputation with those who are on the outside. It just was still a heinous mark. We received him, loved him, and he was heartbroken over the evil that he had committed. But to have him as a deacon, I think, would work against the cause of the kingdom of God. It wasn't a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of being qualified. And so uh, sometimes we take the whole divorce thing and we project on divorced people like they're second-class citizens has nothing to do with they have a lesser role. Look, some divorced people will have the greatest reward in the kingdom of God because they were faithful to what God has called them to do. Uh, It's an issue of God modeling the ideal. Why? Because God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. He hates it. Why does he hate it? Because it rips apart two living people, and he knows as Malachi speaks of the damage that it does to the children. So your unanimous vote was a poor vote. It was an ignorant vote. It was a stupid vote. But there are stupid, ignorant votes that are made all across America. And that's why congregationalism in the truest sense is not a biblical form of government. It's to be led by elders and not just old, any old elders, but elders who are sound in doctrine, who understand passages like this and don't make some stupid, ignorant statement. Well, this happened before you were a Christian, so that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, There's all kinds of things that we do before we're Christians that God can forgive us that might potentially disqualify us from other things. Good question. So should he step down? I think so. I think so. I think what you thought years ago, and again, don't take my word for it. You study this. Go back and listen to those sermons. I walked through church history. I walked through a careful exposition of the text. I spent an hour, you know, on these qualifications. So, yeah, you should step down. But today, all we ask is, is he been divorced? Look, when you come to the office of elder, depending on how you count them, there's between 21 and 23 qualifications. It's not just has he been divorced. There's 23 qualifications for the office of elder, pastor, bishop, all referring to the same office in the New Testament. And if a man doesn't meet them, he shouldn't be an elder. He shouldn't be a pastor. Not to mention, there's obviously some deficiency there in the pastor who's leading the church. Um, for him to let the church run in this way and not really to teach them. So anyway, I hope that helps, Adam. And again, I'm I'm not like you know going against your brethren there at the church. I have no doubt they mean well, but they are responding out of ignorance and not out of sound doctrine. Hmm. All right, uh, one, along the same lines, we had a caller who wants to know if it is scriptural for elders to be appointed if they had not previously been deacons. No, there's no um, prerequisite that a person needs to be a deacon in order to be an elder. But let's just take the broader usage of the term diaconus in the Bible. He that would be great among you must be the deacon of all. And by the way, in most translations, other than in the English Bible, the same word that Jews say in 1 Timothy 3 to describe the office of deacon is also used in passages like the one I just quoted from Mark. And they leave it up to the reader to discern that he's not referring here to the office, 
but just his servanthood in general, because that's what a deacon, the word deacon means, a servant. He that must be great among you, we would translate it in most of our English Bibles, must be a deacon of all. That is, he must be a servant. So I would say this, that if a man is going to serve in the office of elder, and he doesn't have a servant's heart, because listen, it is a servant's role, and it is endless, the amount of time and the demands that people will place on you as a pastor. You have to discern as a pastor, what can you do? Where are your priorities? Because people have endless expectations. But if you don't have a servant's heart, and you say, well, the ministry is great except for the people, then you've got a real problem. But no, there's no um, prerequisite uh, for a person to be a deacon first before he can be an elder. That's not to say that it doesn't happen sometimes in that order. All right, Jeremy, I think we've got about two and a half minutes left. Jeremy from Charlotte, North Carolina, would like to know, how did you know it was time to pray for a wife and stop being a bachelor till the rapture? (laughs) All right. So he must have been listening to one of my messages. I think I somewhat of a half-handed joke in one of my messages when um, I went on staff with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, in 1978. Uh, Me and my friend Tom Lauder, who's now happily married, I think, for about 35 years, and uh, he works for an organization called Pioneers. But um, we both were, quote-unquote, bachelors to the rapture. Uh, Just kind of a joke. And, uh, but, Uh, then I met Audrey. (laughs) So that changed everything. But I will say before I met Audrey, I sensed in my heart that God wanted me to be married. In fact, I wrote down in a journal, I still have that journal, uh, back in 1978, some things that I began to pray for specifically in a wife, things that I wanted God to do, that just as he brought Adam a wife, Eve, that he would bring me a wife. And I had to have certain things that were critical. You know, if she didn't have a heart for people and ministry and God's called me to a life of ministry, she would never make a good wife. You know, if if, if a man is a pastor and his wife's not engaged in the ministry and she's bothered by his ministry or she finds it frustrating, you know, that's just a terrible situation and scenario to be in. But I think sometimes we have a sense in the human heart, very often when we're young, that it's not good for me to be alone. It's not good to be alone. And God can do that at different stages. I'm not saying it has to happen in the 20s. It could happen in the 30s. But a person senses it's not good for me to be alone. And if you sense that, then you should begin to pray that God would give you a committed, godly believer. Because if you're born again, you're committed not to marry an unbeliever, only a believer, Second Corinthians chapter 6. Anyway, we're out of time, and I'm so glad you were able to join us for the Bible line. Uh, you may have questions, and you wanted to even call today. You could go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down menu. Ask Dr. Brogy a question. They come in every week faster than I can answer them. But eventually, we will hopefully answer your question, and when it's answered, you'll be emailed back. If you don't have a church home, we'd love you to come to Community Bible Church. We have campuses in Grays, South Carolina. Uh, We have a campus in Bluffton, Hilton Head, and in Graniteville as well. God bless you as you walk with Christ.